For this being the week leading into a holiday weekend, Memorial Day is this weekend in the United States, and it's the official, unofficial start of summer, there sure was a lot going on this week. Uh, We had the response filed with the Bed Bath & Beyond case, and the Ocean Shipping Reform Implementation Act of 2023 was heard for markup in the House T&I Committee. Some people call that OSRA 2.0. Let's break it all down today. Hi, welcome to By Land and By Sea, an attorney breaking down the week in supply chain, presented by... The Maritime Professor, me. I'm Lauren Began, founder of The Maritime Professor and Squall Strategies. And I'm your favorite maritime attorney. Join me every week as we walk through both ocean transport and surface transport topics in the wild world of supply chain. As always, the guidance here is general and for educational purposes only. It should not be construed to be legal advice and there is no attorney-client privilege created by this video. If you need an attorney, contact an attorney. But before we get into the discussion of the day, let's go through my top three stories of the week. (laughs) All right. Story number one. Last week, I told you this was happening this week. So it happened. The U.S. National Maritime Day. On May 22nd every year, the United States celebrates National Maritime Day. So happy National Maritime Day. You know, 90% of everything moves by ocean cargo. We talk about that a lot. And this vitally important industry has earned this celebratory day, but in good mariner fashion, right? Everybody's too busy continuing their work to celebrate too much, although there are quite a few celebrations. So make sure to thank a mariner today on May 22nd, really every day, right? So from the U.S. Department of Transportation Maritime Administration, so DOT Marad, uh, from their website, I want to read a quote um, from from their website, from their Maritime Day. So in 1933, Congress declared National Maritime Day to commemorate the American steamship Savannah's voyage from the United States to England, marking the first successful crossing of the Atlantic Ocean with steam propulsion. So during World War II, more than 250,000 members of the American Merchant Marine served their country, a quarter million people. Continuing the quote, with more than 6,700 giving their lives, hundreds being detained as prisoners of war, and more than 800 U.S. merchant ships being sunk or damaged. I want to stop here. I just want to reiterate, Merchant Marine is one of our lines of defense, right? One of our... our, military areas that that gets less appreciated than others and really shouldn't. Um, I mean, we have prisoners of war that are merchant marines. We have um, giving the ultimate sacrifice. Certainly we have over, they said 800 U.S. merchant marines being sunk or damaged. These are important numbers. These are important things to know. Um, and you know that that's why we should celebrate and appreciate merchant mariners just as much as any of the other services. It's 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 a service, right? It, it's a service. So I'm going to continue with the quote here. A maritime Day is a time-honored tradition that recognizes one of our country's most important industries. Each year, ceremonies and celebrations throughout the country recognize Maritime Day and the people our maritime nation depends on. It's no more true now than it was when it first began. Maybe it is more true now. This is a service that is so critical to the success of the United States, along with all the other services. But this one is so important. So happy National Maritime Day. And and remember to thank a mariner, just as you thank all service members. 
All right. Story number two. This one comes to us from Lloyd's List. Um, So every so often, the European Union reviews consortia block exemption regulations. This happens fairly periodically. But what does that mean? The EU is reviewing consortia block exemption regulations. Well, let's break it down. So Europe calls alliances, which we talk about quite often, consortia. Okay, so alliances equal consortia for the most part. So basically, they're reviewing their alliance exemptions, meaning just like some of the legislation that's going through the U.S. House of Representatives looking at eliminating the antitrust immunity for alliances or the ability of ocean carriers to form together in these coordinated vessel sharing agreements, as we know that are alliances, the European Union is doing something similar. They're reviewing their permissions for alliances to exist or in the EU, as they call them, consortia to exist. Look, I've talked about this before. Alliances, I feel, serve a very, very important role and help shippers with better routes, diversification of ports of entry, right, export. If if four boats are going on the same route and they're all half full or a quarter full, and, and that's what happened prior to COVID. COVID, if, if, if you're just coming into the supply chain during COVID, that was not a normal, normal thing to look at, right? The, 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 the ability to put cargo on a ship didn't exist much during COVID. Prior to COVID, there was a lot of extra capacity, right? And we're, we're going to be moving back to that world. It's a pendulum swing. It's going to be swinging back the other way um, where, where capacity, right? All this extra space on these vessels. And so if you had four vessels doing the same route, why, why, and, and they're all, they're all a quarter full, half full. Why not consolidate that space? I mean, it's, it's sailing on a boat, right? It's going on a boat. Let's just put all the cargo onto one boat. You can still compete. They're not talking about rates. They're just sharing that space. And eliminating all these alliances won't eliminate vessel sharing, actually. So that's something to note, too. You can still have these piecemeal alliance or, or piecemeal vessel sharing agreements, But they're just going to be just that. They're going to be piecemeal and harder to follow. So going back to their four vessels going on the same route, if you consolidate and and combine, and I say consolidate with a little bit of hesitation because I don't want you to think that consolidate the brands or consolidate the companies. It's just consolidating the space on the vessels. we got four ships. They're all going the same route. Now let's put what can fit on two ships on two ships. Now you freed up two other vessels that can go to other ports. That's the diversification of ports of entry that I'm talking about when it comes to one of the benefits of alliances. I've heard that the ports of Australia are a little bit nervous if alliances go away or if consortia go away because they might not have those vessels now. Some of these companies, might, ocean carriers might not have those vessels available to go to some of these ports in, in some of these more remote areas. I'm not saying that Australia is necessarily remote, but maybe in, in these routes that otherwise weren't typically generally serviced, but were able to be serviced because the vessels became available. There's only so many vessels out there. And that's what where where all of these government monitoring um, programs come in. I really want to court I really want to stress that, right? So these agreements, these vessel sharing agreements, these coordinated agreements are monitored by both the European Union Directorate General for Competition for the European Union Nations and and by the FMC, the Federal Maritime Commission for the U.S. Trades. Eliminating alliances won't eliminate vessel sharing, but it will eliminate the reliability of vessel sharing through these coordinated agreements. They're still going to be checked out. They're still going to be reviewed by these uh, federal entities. So the piecemeal vessel sharing agreements, right, like I said, is, is just that. 
it's it's going to be difficult and harder to follow, harder to monitor because they're going to be piecemeal. They're not going to be as as kind of nicely packaged for these federal agencies to be following. Um, look, I've talked about this before. It's not an exact parallel, but it is something that I think kind of illuminates and explains these alliances and the benefits that we as consumers kind of feel every day, um, a little bit more consumer facing. So similar to the vessel sharing agreements, they're kind of like aviation alliances. So if you want to fly, let's say Boston to Denver, you have options, right? So you go through Southwest, you may have to stop over in Kansas City. You don't want to go to Kansas City. You don't want to stop in Kansas City. That just slows down your overall trek, but maybe it's cheaper, but you know, they only have so many airplanes on, on Southwest. But that's just what their route offers. But then if you were to book the same flight on Delta, you're likely to find a direct flight. Why? Because they code share as part of their alliance. So they're they're sharing their airplanes, basically. So now you have more airplanes that can service that route without you even knowing, really. You may still even book directly with Delta because you like working with them, but you're likely to fly direct on maybe Eagle Air doing business as Delta. That's just an airline equipment share, right? That's similar to the vessel equipment sharing that happens on the Ocean Alliance's side. And let me be clear about one other thing. These alliances, these these vessel sharing ocean going alliances don't discuss rates. They are still fiercely competing for your business. They are just sharing open space on the vessels. And that's what the FMC is watching for. No rates, only equipment, making sure that even though they're being granted this limited exemption from an otherwise monopolistic thing, that they're not talking about rates and that it's not going to be to the detriment of the U.S. shipper, importer, exporter, or consumer, but that it'll be a benefit. So as the European Union is reviewing consortia and as the U.S. is reviewing uh, through Congress the, the decision on whether or not to allow alliances to continue to exist, I really think that this has been a test case of of a success here, right? I think that these alliances have done a good job. Um, for the most part, they've been around for about 10, 12 years at this point. Um, COVID was a strange time. But look at the data. Look at the information before COVID. You saw service reliability go up. You saw capacity availability um, happening. You saw routes, better routes. Um, and I think you you overall, as a general statement, saw rates lower than they otherwise would have been. So we'll see. We'll see. Everybody's looking at, at consortia and alliances and, and what to do uh, with the quote unquote bad guys. Um, look, are they are they bad guys? I don't think so. Did they make some bad decisions? Perhaps we're we're gonna we're finding that out right through all of these this case law and all of these cases that are going through and all these enforcement actions. We're finding out who made right decisions and who made wrong decisions. But as a general statement, are ocean carriers and these vessel sharing alliances bad? I don't think so. I don't think so. All right, story number three. Look, I don't often cross reference my other appearances. Maybe I should. I don't know. But this week I was on two different shows and I wanted to make sure that you mentioned to, to mention them so that you can go check them out. Uh, so first, dropping just today, um, I'm on the Lloyd's List podcast. So I'm going to be talking about different legislative movements on the Hill and the implementation of Osra, two, uh, Osra 22 and certainly Osra 2.0, as it is the uh, the uh, Ocean Shipping Reform Implementation Act. So this is the 
again, all of this is the house version. We're about to get into that. Uh, but that's what, what I'm talking about on the Lloyd's List podcast. Um, and the other thing was earlier this week, I was on Freight Waves Now alongside alongside Dr. Sal Mercogliano. Um, you might know him from What's Going On with Shipping, a wildly popular YouTube channel. If you don't already go watch him on there, you should. He drops two to three videos a week, and he really breaks everything down, all things maritime. Um, but he and I were talking with Bill Priestley in the roundtable about the Bed Bath & Beyond case and the OOCL response. Uh, we also dipped into a little bit of the ILWU and PMA contract negotiations. Again, remember, that contract expired July 1st, still holding over. This is the West Coast labor negotiations. Uh, we, we we had some things to, to mention on things maybe trends we're seeing, but who knows what's going on there, right? Look, both great conversations, both with Freight Waves Now and Lloyd's List Podcast. Um, I'm going to drop the links to these, but go check them out. I hope you do. I, it was it was fun being on these different shows. All right, so let's get into the meat and potatoes of the day. So again, like I said, we're going to be covering the Bed Bath & Beyond and OCL case. There's been some movement there. And the Transportation and Infrastructure Markup, um, the Transportation and Infrastructure Committee hearing of the U.S. House dealt with the Ocean Shipping Reform Implementation Act, <laughs> OSRA 2.0. Uh, so let's let's start with the Bed Bath and Beyond case. So we've talked about this a few weeks in a row now, right? So Bed Bath and Beyond filed suit against OCL, which is Orient Overseas Container Line. Uh, they're a member of the Ocean Alliance, and they're also a controlled carrier. I only mention that just because it, it, it's mildly interesting to know that they are uh, majority owned or controlled by a foreign government, but not really pertinent to this case. But it, it it doesn't often come up in kind of general societal discussions when you talk about some of these ocean carriers. They're not all. They are certainly not all majority owned or controlled by a foreign government. Actually, quite a few are European owned um, and and not saying that that's not majority owned or controlled, but look, they're not all controlled carriers by any means. So, um, so Bed Bath Beyond filed a suit against OOCL, basically saying they failed to meet their service contract commitments to Bed Bath and Beyond, saying that there were minimum quantity commitments. We talked about this a few weeks ago, where I go in a little bit more depth on what the complaint actually says. Um, they they talk about the ability to pick up containers was constrained due to circumstances outside the control of Bed Bath and Beyond, and then they go into saying that they induced OCL is what Bed Bath and Beyond is alleging was inducing Bed Bath and Beyond to enter into premium rate contracts as a precondition to carry just a fraction of the quantity of the actual commitment that they had originally agreed to in their service contracts. The service contracts at issue, according to Bed Bath & Beyond, was minimum quantity commitments of 2,100 FEUs annually, which they said was an average of 175 FEUs per month. So FEUs, remember, are uh, 40 equivalent units versus TEUs, which are 20 equivalent units. It's just the length of the box, right? 20-foot box, 40-foot box. Um, they said only a portion of that was actually provided and that they fell short by over 600 FEUs, 40-foot equivalent units, um, in that 2020 service contract. For 2021, minimum quantity commitments, 3,700 FEUs annually, roughly, um, and they said that they only were provided with 2,400 FEUs <clears throat> for that year. Ultimate damages, Bed Bath Beyond was saying $31.6 million in addition to other injuries, including lost profits, not included here. So they're looking for $31.6 million. Okay, so this has been out there for a few weeks now, a lot of press coverage on Bed Bath & Beyond, um, obviously because originally Bed Bath & Beyond, a few, a few weeks, maybe months ago at this point, filed for 
filed for bankruptcy. So you kind of, everybody I feel like is kind of making the connection. Maybe they filed for bankruptcy because of this, because of all this that happened. Well, I've been waiting for OOCL's response. I wanted to see what OOCL was going to say. There were some things that I was expecting them to say, and they kind of did say some of those. So what did they say? What did they say in their response? So first, they're saying that Bed Bath & Beyond failed to state a claim for which relief can be granted. Sure, that's probably expected here. Um, They said that there's no monthly or quarterly carriage requirements or guaranteed space per sailing in the contract. But look, this is where there's a little bit of gray area, and this is where the case is really going to be interesting watching it over the next probably year, right? It's going to take a while. Um, The FMC really hasn't dove into the enforceability of these less than certain terms of service contracts. So this is the minimum quantity commitments. How many TEUs or FEUs, how many boxes are you going to move in return for a better rate as part of the service contract? So remember, these service contracts are agreements that are then filed confidentially with the Federal Maritime Commission so that the FMC can kind of watch to make sure no monopolistic activities happening, um, nothing nothing bad, nothing um, nefarious. They're watching these service contracts. So that's it. You have a year to move 2,000, 3,000, whatever the number is, of boxes. OOCL is saying, look, this is a breach of contract. This isn't a, a Shipping Act violation. And that's the next point they say is FMC lacks subject matter jurisdiction. Here's a quote from the, from the answer. The Shipping Act prescribes that the exclusive remedy for a breach of a service contract is an action in an appropriate court. Kind of a nod to saying, not this court, not the FMC. Uh, Continuing on in the quote, the commission has long held that this section bars all claims premised on the obligation to meet one's contractual commitments. BBBY, which is by Beth Beyond, cannot create unilaterally, cannot create unilaterally expand the agency's jurisdiction by relabeling contract based claims as Shipping Act violations. That's on page two of the answer from OOCL. Basically, they're saying, look, service contract is a contract. This is a breach of contract. And they're saying breach of contracts aren't for the FMC. Shipping Act violations are for the FMC, but breach of contracts are not for the FMC to hear. That's kind of always been what happens here. And so a lot of times shippers will bring a case with the FMC saying, oh, breach of contract. We had these agreements. That's not exactly what Bed Bath & Beyond did here. And I guess that's what we're going to find out, right? So, But the way that they presented it was a little bit different. And they did try, it seemed, to hinge more on minimum quantity commitments and more Shipping Act violation intentions on their their complaints. Of course, the OCL was going to say FMC doesn't have subject matter jurisdiction here and this is a breach of contract. That's the ultimate question. That's one of the major questions here of this case that I am so interested to see. This is something that I had previously talked about with the MCS, MSC, Costco case. We were looking at the minimum quantity commitments and service contracts. Is that something that the FMC can hear? In that case, in the MCS case, yeah, they they were hearing it, right? They were in the midst of this case moving forward. Um, it's It got into some legal procedural hiccups. Um, so, And I say hiccups meaning that we didn't really get to any of the content stuff. We're still kind of moving towards that, but it's still stuck in discovery. So it's part of a legal procedure. Um, it, 
you can't rely on the MCS case because it's not done yet. It's on appeal, even though the uh, administrative law judge made an initial decision. That's exactly what it was. It was an initial decision. It had an appeal. It has an appeal on it. Um, They're continuing on. But even the initial decision wasn't decided necessarily on the merits. It was on legal policy or legal procedure there. So where we were waiting, we were previously waiting on the MCS. Now we have the Bed Bath & Beyond case that was like, we can't wait anymore. They do reference to the MCS case, but again, not legal advice, but just be careful. It That case is not finished. That case is not final um, by any means. So Bed Bath & Beyond, getting back to here, OOCL. Um, they also said that uh, this was a 10-D-1, that um, the uh, Bed Bath & Beyond um, – Engage in a practice or regulation. Well, OCL is saying that they engage in practice or regulation on a normal, customary, and continuous basis where such practice or regulation is just is um, uh, – so uh, I'm, 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 I don't want this to get overly complicated. So basically, 10D1 was a series of cases that was happening maybe about five, ten years ago, um, which hinged on is this engaging in a practice or regulation – on a normal customary continuous basis, or is it just one that is an unjust or unreasonable activity that then hinges? Um, basically, OCL says nothing to see here. Um, they also talk about um, unjustly or unreasonably exploited customers and refuse to deal with Bed Bath & Beyond are entirely false. They're they're basically disclaiming or, or, or dismissing that assertion from Bed Bath & Beyond saying unjustly or unreasonably exploited customers. So that was that forced Bed Bath & Beyond into this service, this additional rate. Um, they're saying, look, that's entirely false. So, so far, kind of some some ex- expected things. So let's get down to the service contract, right? So so I don't want to go too far into the weeds on all of this. So let's get down to the service contract. Let's bring it back up a little bit in this OOCL answer. Minimum quantity commitments for the 2020 service contract. This is kind of what I, like I said, I keep saying it. The minimum quantity commitments is what this whole thing hinges on. OOCL is saying, Okay, they admitted they didn't hit their overall number. Um, they converted their 2100 FEUs to 4200 TEUs, so basically what, 40 foots to 20 foots, um, or or vice versa. They they 40 foots to to 20 foots. They're saying 2100 FEUs, 40 foots to 4200 TEUs. It's just important because they're now they're they're converting it when they talk about uh, their TEUs. So, but what OCL is saying is that during the contract terms, the parties actually agreed to an amendment reducing the minimum quantity commitment. So they're saying, look, we didn't hit all of them from the original service contract, but we did agree to an amendment and we reduced it. Okay. <laughs> Lines are being drawn, right? Uh, same thing, similarly for the uh, minimum quantity commitments for the 2021 service contract. So what what OCL is saying here is same thing happened. Look, our our minimum quantity commitments were this number, which 3,700 essentially FEUs, or they convert it to 7,500 TEUs. Um, they're saying during the contract terms, the parties agreed to an amendment reducing the minimum quantity commitments. That's going to make a difference, right? If if they agreed and there's some evidence and, and probably an amendment filing with the FMC of a service contract, I mean, that's going to be hard to hard to uh, defend, I guess, uh, for, for Bed Bath & Beyond or, or hard to keep their assertion going, saying that, no, you, you fell short. Well, we fell short because we agreed that we were going to fall short. So... That, but were they coerced into that agreement? That this is where it's all going to get really interesting, right? Um, 
And and certainly the the lack of subject matter jurisdiction for breach of contract versus service contract shipping act violation. I don't know. We might see maybe an initial um, response from the administrative law judge on that, just saying, yes, I have jurisdiction or or no, I don't. I'm going to kick this out um, just so that we kind of get some clarity right off the bat. That wouldn't be the craziest thing if we did something like that. Um, but what was also interesting with this OOCL answer is that they go into a little bit of history on the FMC's ability to regulate reasonableness of cargo space accommodation. And they go through the Shipping Act of 1916. They go through the Shipping Act of 1984, OSRA 98, which I always mention this. OSRA 2.0 for this latest round um, proposed legislation is an incorrect way of labeling that. Because even though OSRA 22 happened recently, if you say OSRA 2.0, that's not accurate because the Shipping Act of 1984 and then you have OSRA 98. You have Ocean Shipping Reform Act of 1998 was the original OSRA, so OSRA 1.0. So then therefore, OSRA 22, OSRA 2022 would be the OSRA 2.0. But uh, all right, in the immediate, in the past few years, OSRA, the most recent proposal, the Ocean Shipping Reform Implementation Act, so OSRIA, (laughs) um, people call that OSRA 2.0. Incorrect. It would probably be most accurate to call OSRA 3.0, but I'm getting so far off the topic here. Um, so, so OOCL's answer, they talk about the Shipping Act of 1916, 1984, OSRA 98, and OSRA 22. And what they say is, while the Shipping Act 1916 authorized the commission to broadly regulate the reasonableness of cargo space accommodations, the Shipping Act of 1984 removed that authority with regard to service contracts. And in the Ocean Shipping Reform Act of 1998, Congress continued this deregulatory narrowing of FMC authority, clarifying that the Shipping Act bars unfair or unjustly discriminatory practices in the matter of cargo space accommodations or other unfair or unjustly discriminatory methods only when undertaken in connection with service pursuant to a tariff. Tariff, not service contract. Congress purposefully eliminated the commission's power to regulate the reasonableness of cargo space accommodations for service pursuant to a service contract in favor of a deregulatory market-based system. So basically what they're saying here is Congress was looking at FMC authorities through the years, through the Shipping Act of 1916, 1984, OSRA 98, and saying we really don't want this federal agency determining the reasonableness of business transactions. Is this a wild service contract? Perhaps, but we don't want the FMC to determine if it's a wild service contract. Because if it's if it's something that both parties agree to, then so be it. That that's what they agree to. So it's an interesting case, a, an interesting argument going through the historical perspective of of intentions of Congress. Um, I'll be interested to see if the ALJ responds to that. I I think that. While the reasonableness of the um, cargo space accommodations is probably not something that you want a federal agency diving into and saying, well, this is unfair business. Because like I said, if the two parties agree, they agree. But it really, I, I almost, maybe that's not what Bed Bath & Beyond was saying, right? They were saying that they felt as though they had they were fine with their service contract initially. It was just that when things went south and and people were being pushed over to the spot market on $20,000 box rate uh, freight charges, that's when the reasonableness 
of cargo space accommodations for service, that's where that's where the the in, interesting discussion is here. So I don't know. These are all both the both of these the the complaint and the answer are both very interesting. I think that these are very interesting lines to have been drawn. Um, not unexpected arguments from both sides, but this is going to be a really fascinating case to follow through with. So I'm going to keep watching. Um, that's where we are. Basically, we've had both sides state their case, and now we're probably going to wait on the administrative law judge to either set that initial schedule for the for the overall um, hearing to go forward. This is probably going to take a year, right? This is going to be a long-term thing. So we're going to be watching it periodically. Um but maybe she's going to come out early and say, look, I do have jurisdiction or look, I don't have jurisdiction on these specific matters. So I'll keep watching. I'll let you know what I see. The other major issue that I wanted to talk about this week was the transportation and infrastructure markup hearing. So this is out of the U.S. House of Representatives. This is the Ocean Shipping Reform Implementation Act of 2023. And this is part of the hearing, um, transportation and infrastructure hearing, uh, which was chaired by Chairman Graves. So what's in... Osria? <laughs> I don't know. What are we going to call this? Ocean Shipping Reform Implementation Act, Osria. Um, Osra 2.0, which, like I said, is kind of a misnomer. Osra 3.0. Uh, so what What was in this? What was We talked about a couple of weeks ago, uh, Garamendi and, and Johnson, uh, both congressmen, had, had um, introduced this bill. Now we get to see what, through horse trading over the past few weeks, has gotten us. So what was in the bill as presented? So it was complaints against shipping exchanges was was kind of an interesting area. It said a person may submit to the Federal Maritime Commission and the commission shall accept information concerning alleged incidents of market manipulation or other anti-competitive practices by shipping exchanges. This one is kind of a nod to the Shanghai Shipping Exchange. Um, There seemed to be some movement for looking at, monitoring, checking out some of the Chinese um, involvement in the shipping world, the supply chain world. And to me, this felt like this complaint against shipping exchanges was probably a nod that way. Um, Advisory committees. We already have a National Shipper Advisory Committee, right? So this is something that we've talked about before. We have quite a few recommendations that come out of the National Shipper Advisory Committee, which is both imports and exports. But now through OASRIA, Ocean Shipping Reform Implementation Act, we have the National Port Advisory Committee, ports. That's great. And the National Ocean Carrier Advisory Committee, which is also great because these are both two entities within the supply chain ecosystem that are very important and should have a seat at the table and certainly conversations happening of what's going on in the shipping world. So National Shipper Advisory Committee and National Ocean Carrier Advisory Committee, federal advisory committees that would be um, advising and, and discussing with the Federal Maritime Commission. There was also a section on data collection. It seems as though no one's really quite sure where the data collection should should be housed. Um, at one point, Congressman Johnson said, look, there's three different regulators, data collectors that we could look at here. It's NIST, um, which is part of T- Department of Commerce, which is uh, – or we have Department of Transportation, or we have the Federal Maritime Commission. And he said, look, it's ultimately the right choice to put this with the FMC. That was one of – that was the amendment um, that came through this markup. Uh, and and the chairman, Chairman Graves of the TNI uh, Mark appearing, said he supports that amendment to ensure that the FMC is the lead in developing data standards that apply to international data commerce. So seems like at least for now, the FMC is going to be the lead in this data standards as far as the House is concerned. And again, that's the qualifier here. 
These bills are just proposals and they are only on the House side. We need a partner Senate bill in order for this to have any chance of becoming a real law um, and making any changes. But these are all great conversations and I'm sure the Senate is paying attention. The last piece here was an independent study and report on the Shanghai Shipping Exchange. Again, like I said from the, the first point, Shanghai Shipping Exchange, I think Congress is getting a little bit more curious as to who they are, what they do, um, and what their impact is in the overall global supply chain shipping ecosystem. So we'll see. Um, there were two amendments that Garamendi brought up that ultimately he withdrew, but he wanted to point out and he wanted to say we needed a little bit more work on them. And so they were the FMC denial authority, um, which he had pre previously presented as the um, ocean shipping. Uh, he had previously presented it basically saying, uh, as an individual bill. So now we're seeing him try to pull this into the Ocean Shipping Reform Implementation Act, um, which is this FMC denial authority. So these alliance agreements are filed with the FMC, but the FMC does not have the authority to deny them in-house. In order for them to stop any alliance agreements, they have to take them over to uh, district court. They have to file an injunction against the agreement in district court. So they have 45 days before it becomes automatically in effect. And Garamendi is saying, look, the FMC, if they're reviewing all of this, they should also have the authority to deny it. There's some controversy here. Um, there, there's great arguments on both sides on why we should do it this way, why we should have denial authority, why this makes sense because there's subject matter experts. But then also it's it's more government intervention, right? That's been the other argument. This is just another way of the government getting involved in otherwise private actors doing private business deals. Um uh, this will be interesting to watch go forward. This was an amendment that was proposed, but then ultimately withdrawn alongside the second amendment that Garamendi brought forward, which is that there's a gray area. He says there's a gray area between the Federal Maritime Commission and the STB, the Surface Transportation Board. So what this, I think, is pointing to is really talking about those rail yards and the per diem that's associated with rail yards. So through bills of lading, are something that the FMC has come out and said that they have jurisdiction over, but it's not exactly crystal clear in the Shipping Act or in the statutory authority of the FMC. It's certainly been understood to be that way, but it's just not from, from a lawyer legal perspective. And like I said, this is, this is educational purposes, educational discussion here. It doesn't seem to be crystal clear. And that's where about 77 shippers the other day sent a letter over to Congress saying, we'd like more clarity here. So ultimately, like I said, Garamedi withdrew both the gray area between FMC and STB and the FMC denial authority, saying that we need really to determine how to parse this relationship between the FMC and STB. And we just need a little bit more work here. So he asked for a commitment from the chairman to work with Garamendi to figure out the best way to present these into the Ocean Shipping Reform Implementation Act and that they would ultimately find their way um, through the legislative process and, and hopefully, I, I, I think in, in his words, hopefully uh, to be included with this. The chairman, Chairman Graves, said he, he um, has that commitment from the chairman. He'd be happy to work with Garamendi. So we'll see. The, the denial authority in the gray area be between the FMC and STB um, I think TBD, right? <laughs> to be determined. I think these are these are areas that we're still going to see some movement on, um, but they they just want to make sure that they get it right, which I appreciate taking a minute there. So um, the other one that I wanted to bring up that was brought up in the hearing is the U.S. Supply Chain Security Review Act. This is um, HR three three nine five. This one directs the FMC to work with an independent 
uh, research consultancy research um, body uh, to review ownership over terminals and MTOs. Um, any changes or announced changes, specific ownership to Russia and Chinese ownership, but they're looking at wholly or partially owned by foreign entities. Um, they they really want to, like I said, they want to dive in more to see China's influence. They also looped in Russia here, um, but they want to see some of these ocean terminals, some of these terminals, um, ports and terminals are being owned um, partially or wholly by foreign entities. Congress is just saying, we want to know more about that. We want to know what's going on here. So um, that's another pending bill. Like I said, these are not law. These are not close to law yet. They would have to have a Senate sister bill. Um, and and as far as I know, they don't yet. So, um, But they are moving. They are moving on the House side. And so they are making progress. So wanted to bring all those to your attention. I'm going to keep watching them. But as always, the guidance here is general and for educational purposes only. It should not be construed to be legal advice directly related to your matter. If you need an attorney, contact an attorney. But if you do have any specific legal questions, feel free to reach out to me at my legal company, Squall Strategies. Otherwise, for the non-legal questions, the e-learning, and general industry information and insights, come find me at The Maritime Professor. If you like these videos, let me know. Comment, like, and share. And if you want to listen to these episodes on demand or if you missed any previous episodes, specifically where I highlight Bed Bath Beyond case complaint, check out the podcast by Land and by Sea. Or if you prefer to see the video, they live on my YouTube page, <clears throat> excuse me, by Land and by Sea, presented by The Maritime Professor. And while you're at it, check out the website, themaritimeprofessor.com. So until next week, this is Lauren Began, The Maritime Professor, and you've just listened to By Land and By Sea. See you next time.